0: Right, well, if you have your Bibles with you, you may want to turn to Galatians chapter 5. We're looking at the second half. This morning we looked at the first half of this great chapter. And as we saw, this whole book really is on the theme of freedom, what it means to be free in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we saw that Christ has set us free from the slavery of legalism, of being bound to the uh, conditions of the old covenant. Those conditions no longer apply. They are the terms and conditions of the old covenant. The old covenant has been supplanted by the new covenant. Uh, It has been replaced, Hebrews 8, and uh, it's redundant and it's going to soon pass away, says the writer of the Hebrews, referring to, no doubt, (coughs) the destruction of Jerusalem in uh, AD 70 when all the just vestiges of the old covenant, the offerings were finally destroyed and have never of course been um, recovered um, because they've gone uh, forever. So there is this legalistic mindset which tempts us to believe that even our salvation depends to some extent upon our performance in some way. But our salvation doesn't depend on our performance and our Christian um, (coughs) endurance ultimately to eternal life does not depend upon our performance but the performance of Christ Uh, the truth is our standing with God is a matter of grace from start to finish and that's what we read in verse 1 of chapter 5 it's for freedom that Christ has set us free stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery but um, (coughs) simply understanding Uh, that we must, what we must remain remain free from is not enough. Freedom in Christ is not merely negative. It's not just freedom from all these different things, legalism and so on. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. And uh, we have to ask ourselves the question, therefore, what is the positive nature of that freedom? What is our freedom for And these are the questions that Paul really addresses in the second half of chapter 5. And the first thing I think to say and to understand is that for Paul, freedom means something entirely different from what it means in any uh, modern secular understanding of the word. In our Western culture, um, freedom is generally seen particularly seen as something individualistic it's something self-centered freedom in the west implies selfish autonomy it implies the right to think and act without any external constraint nobody tells me what to do that is my freedom the catchword today in some circles is authenticity being true to yourself you have to be true to yourself in every realm of your life be it the social realm or uh, the sexual realm or the spiritual realm you just go your own way you work it out for yourself and what is right for you is what you must do but that is in direct contradiction to what Paul describes as freedom in Christ because being free in Christ means not freedom to be what you want to be but freedom to be what God always intended you to be because when you are what God always intended you to be you will find perfect freedom. The illustrations often use of a fish, isn't it? When a fish is out of water, a fish might decide I'd rather be out of water but it's going to die. A fish is designed to be in water in that element and then it's going to thrive. And So we're designed as Christians or as human beings even to be in a certain element in relationship with God and that is how we thrive. That is how we find our perfect freedom. And that was the freedom that God always designed for human beings before sin ever entered the world. So freedom in Christ is not self-centered like the world's freedom but is God-centered. It is not individualistic as it is in the world but it is corporate. We find our freedom in our relationship with our brothers and sisters in Christ in the body of Christ himself. Our freedom in Christ is not autonomous but depends entirely upon the guidance and empowering of the Holy Spirit. As Paul would later write, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Where God's Spirit manifests itself in our hearts and lives and in our churches their freedom is experienced as in no other way. And that's why in the NIV this part of the chapter is is actually headed life by the Spirit and that's what it really is about this second half of chapter five. And so the work of the Holy Spirit now takes um, center stage uh, in the rest of chapter five and indeed in chapter six, these last two chapters of Galatians. And, And Paul has really set up this crucial teaching Back in, in, in chapter 3, uh, in uh, chapter 3 of, of Galatians, uh, he has uh, written, I would like to learn, uh, you to learn one thing, I'd like to learn just one thing from you, he says them. did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning by the means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? and he's now going to um, elaborate on this point in other words just as the Christian uh, doesn't begin by faith and continue by works oh I've trusted Christ that was all of grace and I'm going to do that but now I'm going to go on I must do good works to please God no so just as that isn't the case so neither does it mean that we start the Christian life by means of the Spirit without the Spirit's work I couldn't be a Christian but I'll end by means of the flesh. These things are are parallel. We don't begin by means of the Spirit and then go on by means of the flesh. We begin by means of the Spirit and go on by the means of the Spirit, the working of the Spirit of God within us. That's how we live the Christian life. And I think perhaps the easiest way to get to grips with what Paul is saying here is to go uh, straight to verse um, 17, which is, uh, I think, a crucial verse in this passage. And verse 17 says this, for the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you do not do whatever you want. It's a pretty important um, verse. It describes um, the battle that goes on in the life of um, a believer. Speaking about the life of a believer, because it's speaking about the spirit within, and that spirit is not within the unbeliever. So it's definitely speaking about a believer and the conflict that a believer experiences. Um, before we're converted, then we are governed according to uh, the flesh. Our desires are governed by what Paul calls here the, the flesh, when we're natural born sinners, which we are all of us. And the word flesh. Uh, is a word that can be used in a very neutral sense. It can be uh, just used to to mean uh, humanity uh, in general, or it can mean the physical body in particular. But when Paul uses the flesh here in Galatians, it has uh, a much um, darker meaning. Here, uh, it refers to our spiritual nature as it is in Adam, separated from God and therefore sinful, the flesh in that very negative sense so when Paul is speaking in the theology of Paul as it were um, unbelievers are governed by the flesh Um, they think they have free will if you were speaking to an unbeliever here you'd say well of course I've got free will I do whatever I want to do and of course it does seem as though they do exactly what they want to do they do what they want but they're controlled by their sinful nature Uh, which shapes their morals, it shapes their values, it shapes all their judgments, it shapes their whole world view. The flesh, the fallen sinful nature in their hearts governs what they want to do, decides what they want to do. They are ultimately not free, they think they're free, they're making the choices that they want, but what they want is directed by the sinful human flesh in their heart, in their lives. That's the teaching of the Bible. It's the teaching very specifically of Paul because he goes into it in great detail. Of course, somebody who's not a Christian may choose to do good things. And there's another explanation for that. They don't always do the worst things they possibly can, always do things which are against God's will. The flesh cannot always override this um, moral compass that we might say is, is part of all human beings everybody uh, who's ever been born has a kind of moral compass why because they're created in the image of God every human being is created in the image of God but that moral compass in the unbeliever is hopelessly weak and variable so they may do things they may do altruistic things things for the benefit of other people things that don't directly affect their own welfare but generally speaking they don't. Generally speaking the decisions that somebody makes who is not a believer will be self-centered and in order to make them feel better, be happier, be whatever. Now when you go back to the Old Testament um, the children of Israel had the most uh, accurate and sophisticated compass of all. They had uh, the law of Moses that God had given Moses but the problem was, although the compass of the law pointed the way under the Old Covenant with flawless accuracy, the law lacked the power to enable anyone to follow its direction. That was the problem. No power was given. And so the people were led into all sorts of different and problematic situations. Um, this led to the Israelites uh, to feel, <coughs> in the first place, they felt complacent. They felt complacency because they had this glorious law from God. And they felt, well, if we got the law of God, we're a special people and therefore we're going to be all right. But then they found they couldn't keep it. And uh, that led them either to rebellion against God. God's given us this law, but he's not blessing us. He's just condemning us. Well, it's because you're not keeping the law. Or it led them into despair because they wanted to keep the law, but they just desperately found they couldn't do it. And so all these different conflicting emotions, you find them all over the the Old Testament as the people of God try to grapple with the fact they've got this moral compass, this external compass through the law of God, but they're not given the power to fulfil it. But what Paul says in Galatians is that that battle, that particular battle, is now all over. So, for example, famous verses in uh, chapter 4, verses that we often have recited at Christmas time. Chapter four, verse four, when the set time had fully come, God sent his son born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive the adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, here it is, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child and since you are his child God has made you also an heir we've already quoted Paul from 2 Corinthians actually where it says where the Spirit is there is freedom the difference is when you are a Christian when you are a member of the new covenant God does not just give you a new compass as it were by the Spirit the law of God written in our hearts not externally but within but also the spirit within gives us the power to actually obey this written inward law which God gives us under the new covenant as true believers we are not yet free entirely from the desires of the flesh we are still in this world sinners as well as saints saying to somebody this morning we once were sinners and not saints, sometime we'll be saints and not sinners but at the moment we are both sinners and saints we are saved but we know our own hearts, we're not trying to fool ourselves we know that we sin and we have to confess our sins even as Christians so there's the acknowledgement we're not free of sin no Christian in this life is free of sin or the temptations of sin so we are sinners and saints at the same time but the difference is this Now, we are free to to choose which of these internally competing authorities will govern our lives. Before I was a Christian, there was just the sinful flesh, the power behind my decision-making. I thought I was making all my decisions freely. I chose it. I want to do this. Yes, I know you want to do this. But why do you want to do this? You want to do this because... There is your sinful human nature saying, this is what you need, this is what you want. Oh, I don't know about that. Well, of course you don't. But that's what's happening. But when I become a Christian, the Holy Spirit takes residence in my heart. And there's a battle now between the Spirit of God and this residual sinful nature. And the battle is there between the two. This is what Paul is saying in uh, the verses that we've just been um, quoting in verse 17. I say walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh for the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh they are in conflict with each other. And that is the battle that potentially rages in our hearts. I say potentially because it doesn't have to be a fierce battle at all, although generally speaking sadly in many of us it is. We are now to free, we're free to choose which of these internally competing authorities, if we can pull them that, will govern our lives. In Romans 8, probably the most famous of all Paul's chapters, he says this, the mind governed by the flesh is dead but the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace now there should be no contest back in Galatians 2 verse 20 I quoted this verse this morning it's the most wonderful verse I think in in the whole of Galatians where Paul says I have been crucified with Christ I just, you, can't, you can't meditate on this enough what it means I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me by his Spirit. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. That's wonderful, isn't it? This is the life of faith. What is the life of faith? The life of faith is living by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Christ lives in me. The life I live I no longer live but Christ lives in me. What is that saying? That is saying I am allowing, I am agreeing the will of Christ is controlling me. I want the Spirit of Christ within me to control what I want. If the will of Christ controlled everything that I did in my life then I could do whatever I wanted, because whatever I wanted would be according to the will of God, and I could do it. That's how it will be in glory. Whatever I want, I can do, because whatever I want will be the will of God. If we lived completely controlled by the Spirit of God in this life, then we could do whatever we wanted, because whatever we wanted would be in tune with the will Of the Spirit of God, all right? That's how it could be. Of course, sadly, it isn't always like that, but that is what we're being told here. The Holy Spirit within provides me with a compass, not an external compass anymore, written on tablets of stone, but the law of Christ, as it's called in the New Testament, not the law of Moses. The Apostle Paul never says, obey the law of Moses, of course not. The law of Christ. within is there showing me what to do Uh, the Holy Spirit within me provides me with a compass fully adapted to new covenant living steering me safely through whatever moral maze my day and age or personal circumstances may confront me with Uh, I have all sorts of dilemmas I must make choices what am I going to do how am I going to do this whatever big questions Holy Spirit shows me what I must do and guides me if I trust the Spirit of Christ within me. As I do so I give myself over entirely to his direction and empowering. And as I do so the desires of the flesh are subdued and defeated. That's what Paul is teaching here. That's what he's teaching the Galatians here. Um, and He's doing that because he—he's he's trying to say to them, "This is so much more wonderful than what the Judaizers want to put you under, back under the Old Testament law of Moses." What a what a hopeless substitute that was for this infinitely flexible, infinitely wonderful, infinitely available law within you, which is enabled by the work of the Holy Spirit in your heart. That's what he wants them to understand now understanding that you can run through this passage and it makes a lot of sense so just verse 13 you my brothers were called to be free but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh rather serve one another humbly in love Paul is going to concentrate on the rest of this passage on, on how the life of the Spirit transforms our relationships It's clear that the teaching of the Judaizers had sown discord among the Galatian believers. Some believed this, some believed the other. And and factions had formed in these churches that Paul had seen formed by God as they argued one way or another over the question of the law. And Paul pleads with them. He says, serve one one another humbly in love. Remember what he'd written earlier in verse 6 of this chapter. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love And then he says in verse 14 for the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command love your neighbor as yourself of course it was the Lord Jesus Christ who kept the law for us but he is our example and uh, we no longer need to keep the law of Moses to tell us how to act that's the whole point we have the indwelling spirit who not only shows us how to live a life of love, but actually empowers us uh, to do so. Somebody asked me this morning, what about the Ten Commandments? Well, the Ten Commandments are the terms and conditions of the Old Covenant. But all of the Ten Commandments, God doesn't change. His moral stance doesn't change at all. Nine of the Ten Commandments are all repeated in the New Testament under the commandments of Christ, clearly demonstrating what God's will is and his moral will. The only one that isn't repeated, of course, is remember the sabbath day and that's because the sabbath is fulfilled in christ that's why we don't meet on the sabbath day we meet on the first day of the week uh, celebrating the resurrection of the lord jesus christ the early christians made that very distinct decision not to meet on the sabbath and nobody ever changed the sabbath from the sixth day to the first they made a distinct decision not to meet on the sabbath but to break with that in order, because Christ had fulfilled the Sabbath and they meet on the first day of the week. We no longer need the law of Moses to tell us how to act. We have the indwelling spirit who not only shows us how to live a life of love, but actually empowers us to do so. Verse 15, if you bite and devour each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. So I say walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. What he's saying here is this has to be a conscious choice and it has to be our daily prayer. The Holy Spirit never forces us to do anything. The Holy Spirit will not force himself upon us. But if we choose not to follow his promptings, but instead to obey the urgings of the sinful flesh within us then we will grieve the Holy Spirit away in our experience if we gratify the desires of the flesh then the Holy Spirit will back away into the background we know that if you've been Christians for any number of years you will know that's what backsliding is, that's what losing a desire for God is that's what uh, losing a desire to be with the Lord's people or a desire to pray or or a desire to read the word of God or whatever it may be. And sometimes Christians go through phases like that for years or just go through the motions which is a pretty sorry thing to do. Why is that? Because they've made a conscious decision to gratify the sinful nature and not listen to the promptings of the Holy Spirit. So every Christian has a conscious choice that's our freedom, a freedom that the unbeliever doesn't have the unbeliever is ignorant of what's going on, he doesn't know that he's being directed as it were by the sinful nature before he makes those seemingly free choices but the believer actually does have a free choice, he is not ignorant he knows that this is the case, he knows the situation with his own life and that he makes the choices consciously of whether he's going to follow the promptings of the Holy Spirit or he's going to follow the bidding of uh, the sinful flesh. That's the situation as far as Paul is concerned. Verse 17. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you do not do whatever you want. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. That couldn't be said more plainly. The spirit totally replaces The guidance of the law. If you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. That's um, pretty important and uh, Paul is here not speaking of any specific spiritual leading that, you know, I must know what groceries I've got to get today. He's speaking here in a very important general sense. This is the truth of the matter. And then, of course, we get onto the famous part of the passage, which I'm not going to spend any detail on at all, this conflict, these lists of the acts of the flesh and the fruit of the spirit. The acts of the flesh are obvious, he says, uh, sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God if that's your lifestyle it's not saying if you occasionally fall into some dissipation or some terrible thing every Christian sometime or other falls into sin but if that's your lifestyle that's how you live then you need to watch out Paul says here the acts of the flesh are obvious and I think they are obvious They're certainly obvious to a Christian so we don't to explain them. And actually in the NIV, uh, there's a list of these There's 15 items here and they're divided into four sections by semicolons. I, I don't know whether they are in your Bible, but uh, there are sins of sensuality to start with and sins of false religion. Then a lot of sins of relationships. Um, and then sort of just a couple of sins of general, I don't know, dissipation or whatever it is. But the preponderance of the sins in this list are sins against others. And that's worth noting because it's in line with what I said earlier about Paul's concentration on the problems evident in the Galatian congregation, the problems of factions forming and people falling out with one another over the law of God. I warn you as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. So when when these are besetting sins, when they are part of our life and we don't in any way fight against them anymore. Um, They indicate that those who commit themselves to these things are unlikely to be Christians at all because if our conscience is not strong enough to rebel against these things that we know are grossly wrong then we have a very serious problem indeed, a spiritual problem relating perhaps to our very nature of our standing before God. And then um, we have the fruit of the Spirit, don't we? glorious passage. But the fruit of the Spirit is love. Notice love comes at the beginning. Love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. And um, that's a a, a wonderful thing that uh, he says here. Paul would later write to the Ephesians, In your anger do not sin. But he never had to write, in your love, do not sin. What's the difference? Well, anger can be very close to sin. Love is never anywhere near sin. There's no need to utter a warning. He doesn't say, in your love, do not sin, because not only is there no law against the fruit of the Spirit, but there is no limit to the amount of the fruit of the Spirit that you may safely exhibit. You can't exhibit too much love. You can't exhibit too much joy, etc., etc., all of these things directed to God. You cannot be extravagant in the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, being extravagant means you've got too much of something. You cannot be extravagant in your love for God. You cannot be extravagant in your faith for God. You can't have too much faith. It's great, isn't it? You don't know, worry about that. Isn't that good? There's all sorts of things in life. You have to worry about being extravagant. don't you? Eating too much. All sorts of stuff. But when it comes to how you relax and how you relate to God, it is impossible to to be extravagant. There's no law against it. And uh, love, as I say, is mentioned first, um, not only because of the context that he's speaking about love, but because it is the cardinal virtue from which all other virtues flow. And um, uh, when he's writing to the Colossians, when he's urging a, a similar list of spiritual fruit on the Colossian believers, he says at the end, and over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Well, that's beautifully expressed. That's what love does. You know, it's love for our neighbor, which sums up the law. It's love for our neighbor, it's love for our fellow believer. The new command of Jesus, if there is a new command, it's um, love one another as I have loved you. So the special love for your fellow believers. He says this is something which really quite basically just will transcend and mend any breach between you if you truly experience and exhibit this great virtue. It binds all the others in perfect unity. Where there's no love in a church or in a fellowship, then there's nothing. Where there is love, then there is potential for everything else uh, to follow. That's what we need to meditate on. And then just to finish the chapter, verse 24, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying one another. Those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. We have been crucified with Christ. And if that is the reality, then the passions and the desires of the flesh should have died with us. And certainly their power over us has been broken. That's why Paul says in Romans 6, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. All of these statements of the apostle they all fit together. He has a, a perfectly coherent theology, and he attacks it from different angles, but he says this is the way that we live as believers. And then in these last couple of verses, since we live by the Spirit, let's keep in step with the Spirit Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. Um, if we're conceited, we think of ourselves as being better than others and better off than probably we are. If we're envious, in a sense it's the reverse. It's because we think of ourselves as being worse off than others. In other words, we're either looking down at others because we're conceited or we're looking up at others because we're envious and in either case, says Paul here, our behavior in a church community is provocative, um, which is an interesting word. But anyway, the thing is It's not easy to assess ourselves. We've got to come up to a right judgment of ourselves, Paul says. The Bible says this. Come to a right judgment of yourself. Um, We don't want to be conceited, thinking ourselves better than others. We don't want to be envious, thinking ourselves worse or worse off than others. We acknowledge where God has placed us with all our many gifts, which we should acknowledge, and all our weaknesses, which we also need to acknowledge, we know our place in the body of Christ. And then he says, keep in step with the Spirit. If we, if we clearly keep in step with the Spirit, if the Spirit is, is moderating our lives and showing us how we should live within the context of the body of Christ, if we keep in step with the Spirit at all times, seeking to be sensitive and obedient to his leading, we shall, says Paul, to these Galatians who were fighting among themselves because of the law, We shall find our rightful place amongst God's people and both enjoy and share all the fruit of the Spirit that he longs for us to bear. And the fruit will be shared amongst the fellowship and people will all benefit from it. He gives this wonderful picture of what it means for a congregation of believers to be in step with the Spirit and not giving way to the individualistic desires of the flesh. It's a tremendous picture when you see it in this way. And it is in many ways a summary of everything he's been speaking about. He says this is is what perfect freedom is. This is what you have been created for. This is what freedom is for. Your Christian freedom is for the blessing of God's people and ultimately the growth of his kingdom. It's not for you, although you will be greatly blessed as you take your place within it.